Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. When Vladimir Putin briefly suspended a deal to allow grain exports from Ukraine, he effectively held the world's food supply hostage. He backed down, but restricting people's food is a tactic beloved of thugs the world over. And if you've spent any time over the past couple of years binging quality television serials, Thank the network that started the trend, HBO, an American cable service that turns 50 this year. Our correspondent reflects on its legacy. First up, though. It's election day in America. Millions of people will go to polling places and cast their ballots. Administering elections, issuing, collecting, and counting the ballots is unglamorous, essential work. In most democracies, it's unremarkable, barely even noticed. But in America, election administrators have definitely been noticed lately. I was called a rhino. My daughters were called names that one should never call another female. We've been called cancer. We've been called scum. We've been told that we are part of the problem. We've had calls where, you know, there's blood on your hands. You better watch out. We have also increased our emergency response and physical security training for our election judges and workers. We have increased how they are getting trained on active shooters. So it's just been very brutal at times what people have been saying and doing. These workers are from Colorado, but the problem they're talking about, harassment and threats from people who believe the 2020 election was stolen and worry that today's might be too, is national. Today, in the final episode of our midterm series, we're looking at threats to the usually banal administration of elections. We're in Colorado, which has seen an extraordinary spike in the number of threats made against election workers. 60% of Americans think that democracy is currently under threat, but those concerns vary dramatically. Some worry that elections, especially those that end differently than they'd like, are somehow being rigged or stolen. Others that the institutions safeguarding democracy are being eroded. I'm here at 6.30 in the morning and here until about 6 or so at night. So I love the job. Chuck Brewerman is the El Paso County clerk and recorder. He's friendly and conservative, a fixture in the county's Republican politics. The walls of his offices are festooned with family photos, and he's earnestly passionate about the nuts and bolts of local government. His duties include issuing marriage licenses, recording land transactions, and administering elections. It's essential work, 
But since 2020, it's become a lot more stressful. This started just a couple weeks after the presidential election. I started having people that had concerns about what they're seeing in other places in the country and wondered if some of those things existed here. I had a group of people that came in wanting access to my equipment. They wanted to do a forensic audit. I know the integrity of our equipment. I know the integrity of our process. I knew what they were asking was not proper. I said no. And I was told at that meeting that, Clerk Brorman, we will do this either with you or through you. And I took that as a threat that if I don't play ball, it was going to be tough going for me. And it has been at times. In most countries, nonpartisan civil servants run elections. But much of America elects its election officials, who often run on party lines. That can leave the system vulnerable. Last March in Colorado, Tina Peters, the Mesa County clerk and recorder, was indicted. She's been accused of helping an unauthorized person copy confidential voting machine data after the 2020 election. The data ended up online. Peters, who now has something of a national reputation as a promoter of election rigging conspiracies, has pled not guilty and is set to go to trial next year. Peters is an outlier. Still, a number of Republican candidates seeking office this year have raised groundless fears about elections being somehow rigged or stolen. But not all Republicans toe that line. Well, no one actually uh, wakes up or when they're eight years old dressing up as an election official for Halloween. You know, everybody that I've worked with over the years, hundreds of election officials, you sort of fall into it. Pam Anderson is a Republican with years of experience running elections at the city and county level. Today, she's on the ballot to be the top election official in Colorado, the Secretary of State. So it oversees the elections process. So they manage the registration system that the local jurisdictions use to register voters. They have the rules around elections that that can impact access points. So it's important to have a fair referee in that regulatory process so that people feel that that, that process is fair. If you are partisan in that role, it undercuts that confidence. As with clerks, the position can be powerful. In January 2021, Donald Trump pressured the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, to find 11,780 votes. Raffensperger refused, and this year fended off a primary challenge from a Trump-endorsed opponent. But the question of what could happen if a secretary of state were less committed to democracy or less able to withstand presidential pressure remains. For Anderson, the choice is easy. She answers to the voters, not her party. This is a real job that it is not a partisan job. It is something that we do for our American values that we share. It's the last place we should be injecting polarizing and divisive and partisan rhetoric. Anderson ran against Peters, the indicted clerk, in her primary. After Peters lost, she declined to concede and paid for a recount. She lost. Again. But in many other states, election deniers won their primaries. Almost half of the Secretary of State races this year have an election denier candidate on the ballot, according to States United Action, a watchdog. What we've seen is that actually in quite a few swing states... Republicans who say that the last election was stolen had a much higher chance of winning their primaries, in part because of Donald Trump's enthusiastic endorsements. 
Idris Kaloud is the Economist's Washington bureau chief. And the concern is that if such people were in place for the 2024 presidential election, they may not certify an election loss for a Republican. Presumably that would be Donald Trump, but obviously that would trigger a constitutional crisis even larger than the one that we had in 2020. The concern isn't just clerks and secretaries of state, but also governors who play a role in election certification. Several Republican gubernatorial candidates have suggested that the 2020 election was stolen, including Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania, who was photographed at the Capitol on January 6th before Trump supporters overran it. He maintains he did not enter the building. I think the available polls suggest that Doug Mastriano has a low chance of winning his election. I think that in Michigan, Tudor Dixon, the Republican, who also thinks that the 2020 election was stolen, is probably going to lose to the incumbent governor, Gretchen Whitmer. Of course, that obviously might change. I think that the best shot for a governor like this would be Carrie Lake, who is running to be governor of Arizona. The belief that the last election was stolen was at the center of her campaign. But you cannot let the 2020 election, with all that went wrong, go untouched and sweep it under the rug. Because when I'm in office, it's coming back out from under the rug. We're going to examine every bit of it and we're going to fix it. But I think that she might still win because she is an incredibly charismatic and magnetic speaker. And it's not just Lake. The New York Times estimates that more than half of Republican gubernatorial candidates have expressed misgivings about the 2020 election. Half of those are expected to win. For voters, it's not a deal breaker. President Biden has given two relatively big speeches on the threat to democracy that is faced by the country. My fellow Americans, we're facing a defining moment, an inflection point. We must, with one overwhelming, unified voice, speak as a country and say there's no place, no place for voter intimidation or political violence in America. But it hasn't really made a difference. It doesn't feel to many Americans like Republicans are the existential threat that Democrats point them out to be. They certainly are much more concerned with pocketbook issues like inflation. They seem to be even more concerned about issues like crime. That's reflected in polls. Far more voters cite inflation in the economy than democracy as their top concern. The threats come from many sides. Pressure on clerks, armed watchers at ballot boxes, worries that an election administrator's partisan concerns may lead her to put her thumb on the scale. And it could all add up to something serious. I think we saw in 2020 that a majority of Republicans in the House, a majority of Republican state attorneys general who are supposed to be the top law enforcement officers in their states, a significant fraction of Republican senators, all voted to not certify or try to cancel the votes in states that didn't go for Donald Trump. That's remarkable. And even if voters don't seem to think that it's disqualifying, and I think they certainly don't, that is still a dangerous path for America to be on. The hope is that Americans can de-escalate, but the story of partisanship and polarization over the last 20 years has not been one of of mutual de-escalation. It's been the opposite. For the embattled county clerks in Colorado, they're hoping for de-escalation too. And they're doing it by being more transparent than ever. 
Chuck Broerman is uploading all the ballots online so people can conduct their own audits at home. Others are giving voters a peek behind the scenes. So this is the first floor of our ballot processing center. And to get into this area, you have to have a badge with credentials. We also have cameras in here that are on 24 Molly Fitzpatrick is the clerk of Boulder County, which has 220,000 active registered voters. She's running for re-election as the Democratic candidate. This is our sorter and signature capture machine. So as you can see, it goes through that clear section and it's getting sorted. And it's also capturing an image of the signature that these people over here are reviewing. So these are our bipartisan teams of judges who are trained for signature verification. There are multiple layers of security. So this is our scan room. So again, we had to have a badge to get in the building, and then we had to get a, have a badge to get behind these doors. You would have to have a badge to get into this room. I cannot get into this room. My badge does not allow me to get into that room. Fitzpatrick offers the tour to anyone who wants it. We trust our process. We know our process. And there's no reason that we wouldn't want to share that with the public. So that's why we're willing to say, come into our office. Let me answer this question over email. Even if it's hundreds, that's our job. The need in our community right now is to be transparent and to respond to mis- and disinformation. And also to acknowledge that there are people that are never going to believe us. I've had conversations with people and they've, you know, said, okay, I see this process, that makes sense. But at the end of the conversation, they say, I still don't think this election was accurate. I think it was stolen. Her response is simple. I'm willing to answer any question that they have, whether it's today, whether it's a year from now, willing to talk to them, sit down and have a conversation. I ask them, like, what could I do? What kind of information could I provide to you to give you more confidence? And a lot of times I'm not met with a whole lot back. For more coverage of America's upcoming elections, listen to our sister podcast, Checks and Balance. And subscribers can join the Checks and Balance team for a live Q&A discussion about the midterm. Idris and company will be analyzing the results live at 9 p.m. UK time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Thursday, November 10th. You can sign up now at economist.com slash checks event. And there's a link in the show notes. You can also find all The Economist midterms coverage at economist.com slash midterms 2022. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from The Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. When Russia invaded Ukraine in February, it did so by air, land, and sea. In the opening days of the invasion, Kiev's ports were blockaded, trapping an estimated 20 million tons of grain inside the country. As supply plummeted, prices skyrocketed, and Mr. Putin's war sent ripples of pain across the globe. 
global hunger levels are at a new high. In just two years, the number of severely food insecure people has doubled. These frightening figures are inextricably linked with conflict as was cause and effect. In August, cargo ships started sailing again. But famine remains a serious and growing problem. And Putin is far from the only warlord driving it. So if you think about Vladimir Putin and then you consider an Ethiopian foot soldier, you might not automatically think they have that much in common, right? One's a very well-known person with nuclear arms and the other is someone probably in a hut you've never heard of with an AK-47. Avantika Chilkoti is an international correspondent for The Economist. But they both illustrate a problem that we have in the world today. They have sort of a power to disrupt food supplies. The UN says armed violence is the biggest obstacle to ending hunger in the world today. Of the 828 million people in the world who don't get enough food, nearly 60% live in countries that are wracked by conflict. So what is it that links conflict and hunger? So to be clear, there are lots of things that cause hunger, right? So you've got things like poverty. You've got issues like climate change causing flooding and drought, which means the world doesn't produce enough food. But all of these things are made much, much worse by war. When you have a conflict, you have fields that are burnt. You have cattle that are slaughtered. Farmers might be called up to join the fighting. They might not be able to get basic things they need on their farms, like fuel, because the army is using most of that. And this is not just a problem of Ukraine. This is really happening in conflicts all around the world. When you say it's happening all around the world, where in particular are you talking about? If you look at the top 10 countries in the world with the largest absolute number of acutely hungry people, all but one, Sri Lanka, are conflict-riven countries. So if you think about, for example, Afghanistan, Today, about 90% of the population is going hungry. Since the Taliban takeover last year, you've had the entire economy collapse into crisis. People cannot afford everyday meals. People in rural areas are just about starting to sow their crops again. If you think about places like Ethiopia, in the north, in the Tigray, government forces have basically used hunger as a weapon. They've blocked off supplies so that people in this region just can't access food amongst many other things they need. And again, these are all countries where men with guns are disrupting the production and access to food. I know we're talking here about a number of discrete conflicts, which all have their own specificities and backstories. But do you think there's something that unites these men with guns, a reason that they see profit in disrupting food supplies? It's just the easiest thing to weaponize, isn't it? It's just something that everybody needs. There's sort of two general ways to do this. I mean, one is you steal food. So you see jihadists and bits of Africa doing this all the time. And the strategy is if we can get hold of supplies, if we can stop these trucks, get hold of the food, make money, we can buy more guns. So that's one way of doing it. The other is sort of intentionally causing hunger. So if you look at northern Nigeria, Chad, there you basically get jihadists terrorizing farmers. You're forcing people to flee into towns and cities and then destabilizing the government. The point is to cut off food supplies, to create instability and cause society to fall apart. The thing that's making headlines at the moment is what's going on in Ukraine. And there, Vladimir Putin can really cause hunger globally. Last year, Ukraine provided about 
10% of the world's wheat, almost 50% of the world's sunflower oil, and lots of other important things like maize. And it ships 95% of that stuff through ports on the Black Sea. So when you're Vladimir Putin, when you've got a war going on in somewhere like Ukraine, the food supplies that you can disrupt are not just local. They're not just national. It's incredibly international, the impact he can have. So what does all of this disruption mean for consumption and food prices around the world? So what you're seeing is people are just eating a lot less. So a lot of the food that comes out of Ukraine and Russia, Ukraine in particular, ends up in sort of the Middle East and North Africa, a lot of very vulnerable countries. And there, as food prices rise and rise, a lot of people simply can't afford three meals a day. They're eating a lot less nutritious food. They can't get hold of staples like wheat or bread. And that fall in consumption, we'll feel the effects of that for a long time to come. One particularly interesting thing is how spiraling food prices can actually cause obesity. So if you look at cities, I was speaking to a few groups in the slums of Nairobi. When fresh produce becomes so incredibly expensive, when you have food price inflation that we have at the moment, people end up buying ultra-processed packaged foods. You'll buy a fizzy drink and a packet of biscuits and call that dinner. And hunger in that case can often look like obesity and it can lead to other health issues like diabetes, heart disease. So the way this looks in urban and rural areas, the way this looks in different communities is totally different. What will it mean for the world if prices remain high, especially in countries that are most exposed to the rising cost of wheat prices? The suffering of people every day is the most obvious short and medium term impact. One interesting thing is the question of whether this could be sort of a cycle whereby violence creates hunger and that hunger creates more unrest and violence. So in June, The Economist built a statistical model of unrest. And in that, we found that food and also fuel, the prices of these things were a really good predictor of unrest. Back then, we thought that outbreaks of unrest would pretty much double in a lot of countries in the years to come, thanks to inflation. And so far, we've seen these outbreaks in 17 countries. The biggest rise has been in very poor countries compared to rich ones, which makes sense. And what about if the war were to last only a year, 18 months? Would that mean things go back to normal fairly quickly? It'll be a great thing if food prices come back down very quickly. The trouble is that the impact of even a month of hunger can be very, very long lasting, especially in children. If you're hungry in, say, the first thousand days of your life or as a woman when you're pregnant, it has all kinds of long-term effects. So for a child, it can cause stunting, so how you physically develop. It can also affect your cognitive development. And the World Bank says that a smaller share of 10-year-olds in poor and middle-income countries today are able to read than in 2019. This is partly because of COVID lockdowns, but it's probably also because of the hunger around the world. So actually, that might be the worst legacy of this senseless war in Ukraine and of all the other conflicts we see around the world in Afghanistan, in Somalia, in the Tigray. Millions and millions of children around the world are growing up to be less healthy, less intelligent, and probably less able to live a productive life. All right, Avantika, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, John.
50 years ago, the cable television company Sterling Manhattan was struggling with high costs and low take-up. Their CEO, Charles Dolan, had to come up with something fast, and that thing was Home Box Office, which became better known as HBO. Faye Lomas writes about culture for The Economist. HBO initially became known for enabling subscribers to watch films from their own sofas and without ad breaks. It went on through its creation of original series to raise the standards of television with hugely successful shows like Curb Your Enthusiasm, Succession, Sex and the City. And it also changed how television was consumed. HBO was a premium cable television channel. And that meant that it wasn't subject to the same government regulation that applied to broadcast television in the US. And also it meant that it didn't have to placate advertisers. So it was able to set itself apart from a lot of the competition because it didn't have to worry about censorship. It developed a bit of a reputation for raunchiness in its early days because subscribers could watch films with all the sex and the violence left in. And it also set itself apart by offering live sporting events. It made history in 1975 because it became the first network to broadcast continuous signal by a satellite with its broadcast of the thriller in Manila boxing fight. The inimitable uh, Flip Wilson, with or without his uh, Geraldine. Geraldine. HBO found itself having to change tack in the 1980s when video hire stores became immensely popular because people could suddenly go to the hire store and get any film that they wanted and watch it whenever they wanted. And suddenly HBO's film offering became a lot less desirable and a lot less unique. To combat this threat from rentals, HBO developed their own original programming. Early dramas like Tales from the Crypt gave way to critically acclaimed shows in the 90s. The prison drama Oz was HBO's first hour-long drama. There's something in the air. And it ain't love. And that was swiftly followed by The Sopranos. Tony Gabagool, Grandma. Something but fat and nitrates. Gabagool. Over here. And The Sopranos was really transformational within the history of HBO and indeed the history of television. It was really the first viable gangster TV show, and it's also considered by many to be one of the best TV shows of all time. A few years later, the show The Wire, with its cast of over 30 African-American actors and its complex exploration of post-industrial society, helped to cement HBO's reputation for serious drama. One reason why HBO has been able to have so many critically acclaimed shows is because of its business model. It aims to attract subscribers rather than needing to please advertisers, and that's ended up giving it creative freedom. It also doesn't have necessarily to attract the highest number of viewers per show in the same way that channels that are funded by advertising are all about viewing figures it might find that there's a real value in a show that appeals to a smaller community but really gets them to subscribe. Stories no longer had to fit into specific slots within the week and the generic expectations that often went with, say, the Wednesday evening slot at 7pm or whatever it might be. And narrative itself was liberated from the constraints of regular ad breaks. HBO tried to cultivate this reputation for excellence and for offering something different. Their most famous slogan ran, It's not TV, it's HBO. But actually what's gone on to happen is it's gone on to influence what we expect from TV and what we see from TV on other networks. 
The Sopranos prompted this growth in television antiheroes that we see followed up by Walter White in Breaking Bad and Don Draper in Mad Men. Game of Thrones then launched this vogue for television fantasy, and we can see the recent Amazon Prime show, The Rings of Power, attempting to capitalise on that. HBO shows set viewer expectations for really high production values on TV. At the same time, HBO's model paved the way for its competitors. It's often said that there would be no Netflix without HBO. HBO has tended to have this focus on quality over quantity, but now it's finding itself needing to appeal to audiences who expect both and who can gleefully binge a whole season in a weekend. At the same time, they've developed carefully over the years this brand of exclusivity, but a recent merger with Discovery Plus, who are particularly known for reality TV, runs the risk of diluting this image. That said, they've always had this spirit of adaptability. So as they go in to celebrate their 50-year birthday, the future is looking pretty bright as well. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. Drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from The Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.